What's up, Noggin Notes listeners? Welcome back, and thanks again for downloading this podcast. I appreciate it. My partner, Safiso, appreciates it, and we hope that you are continuing to enjoy the content that we continue putting out. This week's episode is an interview I conducted with one of my employees at Zephyr Wellness. Her name is Amanda Green. She's a phenomenal therapist. She deals mostly with children. And uh, we're going to talk about some parenting and different uh, ways to parent and also some child development stuff. It's pretty cool. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please go to audibletrial.com slash notes and download your free trial for 30 days. You'll get a free audiobook along with it. And why Audible? Well, because they have a totally unmatched selection of audiobooks and other content that is uh, there for your choosing. You take a little survey at the beginning and they'll custom tailor some selections for you. I did it. I love it. I enjoy audiobooks and I think I enjoy them almost as much as I enjoy podcasts. But I may be biased. So maybe one day Audible will pick up Noggin Notes and turn it into some content on their platform. Who knows? Who knows? In the meantime, please download uh, your free trial. Go to audibletrial.com slash notes, and you'll be helping us out in the process. And then uh, while you're doing that, maybe take a listen to a podcast. Maybe this podcast, if you don't pause it. This one's about child development and parenting with Amanda Green, marriage and family therapist, and Zephyr Wellness Employee of the Year 2017. Enjoy. talking today with Amanda Green, who's a marriage and family therapist, works for us at Zephyr Wellness. Hi. Hello. You just got your full-blown actual license, or actually you passed the exam and you're waiting for your license. Yes. This is, uh, we're recording this tail end of June, we're waiting for the license to come in the mail, but you've been a, a marriage and family therapist intern for three years? Yeah. Three years, uh, which isn't bad. That's about the average that, that people do. You can't do it in fewer than two years, and you can't take longer than six. Otherwise, you have to restart the whole thing. Uh, so you did it in three, and that's about that's about accurate. So now you're um, you're no longer you're you're running around unsupervised. Yeah. <laughs> um, but your your wheelhouse has been uh, children, and you're you're a play therapist. And today we're going to talk about parenting, and that and there's there are many t- ways to talk about parenting. And we're not going to cover them all, but we're going to break it into three categories. There's parenting generically, then there's grandparenting, which is its unique uh, stripe unto itself, and then there's foster parenting. And we could go a bunch of different directions with the demographics, but essentially that's what we're going to cover today. But I want you to talk a little bit about play therapy because we had you on the podcast some time ago talking about play therapy, and that was really cool. But I, I think where I want this to go is I want you to talk about play therapy. I want you to talk about kids and how kids integrate into the family unit and structure. And then we can just move through the parenting stuff as we go. Sound cool? Yeah. All right. Uh, lean close to the microphone because we want to hear you. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, well, play therapy, the idea is is children don't have the verbal language built up. So they... Um, they play, which is their language, and they play out what is affecting them. And um, with play therapy, you lo- use a lot of feeling words. Uh, so you, as they're playing, you just say you describe like as what you are seeing and what feelings are being expressed during it by either the child or in the play. Same emotions we talk about on this podcast a lot, just yeah. done through play. Exactly. 
Um, normally with kids, we leave out like a f- few of them, like contempt is not typically right. what we talk about or shame. Right. Um, but you're, you, what you're so. doing is you're teaching them what these words mean and how they feel them in their body so that they grow up knowing what they are. Exactly. Right. Um, and then the other piece is, is we use choice a lot for having that responsibility with the feeling. So is that nobody else is making me, I'm choosing to have that feeling or I'm choosing to do that behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other piece is I incorporate a lot into play into therapy with children is problem solving. So oftentimes or coping skills. So oftentimes like you, they're able to identify their feelings. They're able to take responsibility, but then they don't know what to do after that. And so they don't know. A lot of know. adults fall into that category too. So if you're hearing this and you're an adult and you're like, wow, I need some of that. What went wrong in my childhood? Well, probably nothing, but, yeah. but we're just poor as a society in teaching this stuff specifically. Exactly. Um, and so that's, I also, so a lot of the things that I use in play therapy are a lot of the things I teach to parents. Gotcha. Um, and so kind of going into that, um, that what the kid like incorporating is oftentimes we see a child as a second rate citizen within a family as like subhuman, um, you know, oh, you don't know any better. I'm better than you. You shouldn't be feeling that, you know, there's a lot of, beliefs that might go around with that about what feelings mean so we so typically in a family is that um children's feelings are invalid invalidated a lot is that because the adults don't know how to validate their own feelings and i think that's what it is is they're not they're not taught there there's beliefs around feelings with it being that they're bad they're they're negative you should only feel happy and interest um, avoidance of those feelings. So maybe they're uncomfortable, so they don't know how to help their kid through them. So there's, and there's many levels of invalidation. It's, it's interesting you bring that up because we just, in our last podcast, I talked to a gal named Whitney Goodman out of uh, Miami, Florida. She's a marriage and family therapist. And we talked about toxic positivity and it's basically the, the suppressing or the ignoring of, um, unpleasant emotions and neurologically we we don't get control over what we feel like the environment's going to throw stuff at us and we're going to feel it and if it's unpleasant we still have to feel it so it's really dangerous to send a message that kids have to be happy all the time but as adults we receive those messages and then we start to believe them and then we impart them onto our kids and it's it's absolutely detrimental to their development and part of raising a child is also looking back to see how maybe you were treated as a child, like what worked for you when you were growing up, what didn't work for you. And I think that's a lot of what parents struggle with is being aware because they perpetuate that cycle. It's or the, they go the opposite direction. Or they go the extreme opposite mm-hmm. and fi- instead of finding the middle ground. So, you know, you'll you'll maybe you had an authoritarian parent growing up and then it moved to a permissive and then you moved to a permissive parent. So, um, you know, like allowing your ki- child to do everything, not setting any boundaries. And it's yeah. finding that middle ground. Yeah. And, and, and I think if we could hover here for just a second, I want to talk a little bit about parenting out of guilt. We hear we hear this phrase, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily know what it means. And to identify, because I know you're going to get into this with some of the grandparenting stuff too, is when we're parenting out of guilt, what we're what we're essentially doing is we're trying to spare our children the pain that we think they don't need to endure. So, for example, maybe um, maybe the kid's been through 
some sort of tough time and we say, well, we don't want to hurt them any more. And I'll put that in air quotes. We don't want to hurt them any more than they already have been. So therefore, I'm not going to say no because saying no causes pain, which it does. And that's fine. You, it's called distress and you have to learn to tolerate that distress because life is full of being told no. Uh, and so out of that guilt of like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt my kid anymore. I'll just tell him yes all the time. And that's, that's super dangerous because what you're not teaching them is boundaries. Yeah. And you see that a lot with divorced parents too. Uh, interesting. Is, okay. Yeah. Um, cause one parent will often make up for the absentee or the less around parent or what they perceive as absentee or less around. Right. Yeah. So like there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, two parent homes that are very solid and intact, but one, one stays home and raises the children while the other works. And there's this perception that the one who's working is quote unquote absent and they're not, they're just not physically present during the day because they're contributing in all other ways of, you know, uh, generating income and paying the bills. And then in the evenings they come home and they spend time with the children. And I think sometimes parents who are in that type of dynamic or even in a divorce dynamic where there's two separate homes, there can be a perception that one's not doing as much or enough, or there's a competition or a comparison. And then there's an overcompensation to make up for that perceived absence when really maybe there's not even an absence at all. Yeah. How often do you see that? Um, I see it more as like um, not necessarily that the other when they're married or living together is that one's not around. But in I see it with um, different viewpoints of how to parent. So often mixed messages that are sent from parents about how to handle a situation. So one parent will give a discipline and then the other won't follow through with it. In the same uh geographical location like in the same home or are you talking different homes they'll get in the same home oh wow okay yeah that is that is tough most common problem that i'll see where so uh i i'll work with co-parenting a lot within finding that like let's talk about how you parent your child together let's find a middle ground let's find an agreed upon like place where what do we discipline for what do we not discipline for that sounds like it would invite a lot of arguments. Um, I haven't done as much work as you have with uh, young children, yeah. But what I've seen is when I when I work with those parents about the co-parenting philosophies, especially when they're in separate homes, uh, it invites arguments and a lot of finger pointing, saying, "Well, I do this and it works, and she doesn't do that," or she, you know, she says, "Well, I do mm-hmm. this and he won't do that," and so it it ends up getting into this blame game between the parents instead of saying, "Hold on, let's let's just pick something that you both agree on." It's like they they start digging their heels in and insisting that one is right and the other must be wrong. But you can have two versions of right, right or not. Well, and some of that is just allowing that other person to kind of, if it's not harming the child, just kind of allowing the other person to parent in that and um you know it's like yeah you're not going to be able to control the other person and so there's that point of when you know it's that we're going to find some agreed upon and and, but there's some things we're not going to find that agreed upon how can how we talk a lot about consistency how important is consistency insofar as the types of enforcement of rules So with parenting, enforcement of rules should be, like, really important. Um, But when we talk about the rules, what oftentimes we have a problem with is what rules should be enforced. Uh And so, um, you know, depending upon parenting style with around emotions, especially is that for some families it's not okay to display anger. And then so when you display anger, then you get in trouble for it. 
but it should really be the case like if you're going to harm if you're harming yourself or you're harming someone else or you're breaking the family value like a rule of the house should really be when it's disciplined not because you just scream and shouted you know because you were upset kind of thing um so where it's the that's the important time where instead teaching a different skill to handle the anger instead of punishing for displaying anger, which is then creates that invalidation. Is it tough to get the parents on the same page that displaying anger is okay? seems like um, the, the, you'd run into problems where like one says, yeah, yeah, I agree with Amanda. She says, let's dis, you know, let, let the child display the anger. And the other goes, no, absolutely not under my roof. Well, I think it um, varies within that, whereas some are like, yeah, it's perfectly okay, and others are like, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing it. And so oftentimes the way that I initiate talking about parenting is the first thing I do is I teach about the 10 basic emotions, Um, development of the brain. Uh, especially with kids, because the brain, what we know about the brain, it grows into out. So when we say the brain's not fully developed until about 26, it's really that prefrontal cortex, because that's the last part we're waiting to grow. The logic, the executive function, the analysis. Exactly. So, t- and so t- tell, tell more about the brain, because I, I, I want to I wanna s- explain this. When you say into out, um, you mean like from the brain stem and the emotional out to the other types of functions the higher the higher levels of functioning so like babies um their brainstem in the beginning when you know they don't they don't have the ability to hold up their head so part Uh of what the brainstem is learning how to activate those muscles to be able to um, hold up their head to be able to do movement all those are really neuro wiring through the brain creating that and so um, and we'll talk more about this in trauma, whereas, you know, so it's like it's, yeah, w- they can think logically sometimes, not mm-hmm. most of the time. Um, and what happens is that when we say you're not allowed to feel that way or we get that message in some sort of way, it's not teaching them how to wire the brain differently. All that, all it's, all it's doing is um, essentially getting stuck there. And so when you teach it, it allows further development of the brain. And so as you know, there's like these different things that get hit, um, that these mild mental, the milestones, um, with brain development that, that changes, right? So about 10, you stop playing and you go more into social relationships and you learn to, your communication is different and all that, um, changes as you develop. And, you know, it's like, you remember being in your mid twenties and all of a sudden going, Oh, I get that when I didn't get it yeah. like 10 years before. Yeah. So if you could basically go through some milestones here that um, the, the listening is, if I'm the, the listening audience, and I am right now because I'm finding this stuff fascinating, it's, it's, it's in your area of expertise, not mine. Um, baby through, uh, you know, adolescent, 17, 18-year-old, what are some important things to know about interacting with children at certain ages. I've got a four and a two-year-old, and I'd Mm -hmm. like to think that, generically speaking, their brains haven't formed to connect abstract from from concrete. And so I want to spend a lot of my time just simply giving them room and space and and labeling emotions for them and not a lot of negotiation because there's not – that doesn't – that yeah. doesn't come at that age, but at what age does it come, and what should we look for if there's parents listening? And and I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say it's age, but it's really developmental because everybody develops at a different rate. 
Okay. And so not not all five-year-olds are created the same, but it's around there okay. in a thing. So, you know, we all know the normals where it's the the head standing, you know, the, the head staying up, the, the crawling, the, the turning over, the walking, all those kind of ones are pretty normal. Um, verbal skills. So, like, if a kid has a hard time talking, um, that can create a lot of problems. Tell me about um, it. That's what my that, two-year-old's doing um, right now. With, like, exactly, you know. And so, like, if it's – so normally around two is when they begin to talk where they're able to form at least short sentences. I said no, you know, those kind mm-hmm. of things. That um, when they aren't able to formulate those kind of things, it can create problems and frustration, higher rates of anxiety. Um and so it's really important to get them into speech therapy um, if you are, you know, like, at least by three, if they're really struggling to develop those skills. Um, you see that commonly with uh, children that have been in trauma or neglect situations. Mm. Okay. So, if uh, yeah. you know, we, we, we'll presume that my kid, Ethan, has not been traumatized or neglected. Uh, <laughs> is, is it possible that some kids just refuse to talk because they have an older sibling doing the communicating for them? And, and then how long might that last? I'm making this personal, obviously, but I think mm-hmm. it's generalizable to the audience. How long might that oh. last before you get really concerned? Three Probably four. around three or okay. four, you know, when you get into that going to preschool and um, elementary school, that's when it's really concerning because... Because um, there's no sibling there to communicate with. There's no sibling, for the, yeah. sibling for them to communicate with, but it's like also like if your chi- if the other child wasn't there to talk for the kid, would your kid talk kind of thing? Yeah, you know? so far we haven't seen that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, where the close siblings like that will communicate with one mm-hmm. another because they they empathize they understand more so what the two-year-old's looking for than Mm -hmm. we do because you know we look at it through that adult lens so as we're we're raising kids and we get to you know uh, school age uh and the reason i brought up the thing earlier about how important is consistency between and among environments is um you may have family rules that the school won't necessarily enforce or the after-school program or the daycare and i i would reasonably assume that Maybe if it's not something worth dying on the hill for uh, at one of those areas, maybe it's not worth dying on the hill at the ex's house across town, for example. Exactly. So I guess, you know, as, as we're getting these, these kids getting older, it's easier to maybe manage them a little bit better. Um, what, what's an important thing for parents to know about school-age children, say, you know, 5 to 10, with regard to how school treats them at home and enforcement of certain things across those environments? Well, at school, they do more of the the consequences type things. If you do this, this is what happens. So, yeah, they have somebody come in and teach feelings, but they don't have, like, they don't necessarily do that incorporated every single um, day or every in every single classroom unless it's maybe a social social emotional learning school mm-hmm. um, that focuses because they you know there's a lot of research that says the ability to handle feelings is really related to success in academics and social Absolutely relationships it is. yeah and it, and it has to do with impulsivity too and if you have lower exactly. impulsivity then you can concentrate better and get your work done exactly and so um schools aren't going to do you know schools aren't going to empathize as much teachers aren't you know they have 30 kids in Too the busy. classroom yeah, it's sure. You know, it's really hard to, to do that. And so part of that is being able to be that safe place for your kid when they get finished, when they're done at the end of the day at school. Because oftentimes what I'll hear is that kids will get in the car with their parents and say, 
Johnny hit me today. And then parents are like, well, you must have did something to provoke it. Or instead, like just sitting there being able to talk about it and maybe figuring out alternative ways of handling it, Hmm. you know, to create that connection and to teach their kid, you know, like that's what, you know, you were sad when Johnny hit you. And this sounds like uh, something that we uh, deal with in group settings. So in group settings, and, I, and I'm pretty sure I uh, covered this at some point in a podcast recently because it feels mm-hmm. um, relevant or recent. Um, in group settings, if somebody starts to get uh, upset, the other group members will often reach out and try to pull that person out of their their distress because not because they want them to feel good, which is which is okay, and that's part of it, but more so because we don't want to see them in that in that zone. And one of the ways we pull them out of that distress is we go to problem solving. We don't stay in limbic. We go to logic and we start, you know, throwing out suggestions like, you know, get an attorney or did you call the cops or file a police report? And and what you just described there with, it's always Johnny, right? It's yeah. Johnny or Timmy or Susie. <laughs> so little Susie says, you know, Timmy hit me. And um, the parent jumps right to problem solving. Like, well, I got to attach a reason to it. You must have done something. Or what did the principal do? Or, you know, did you get in trouble? Instead of just sitting there in the moment with them and validating going, wow, how'd that make you feel? Or tell me about it. Describe what happened. Mm -hmm. And we sit there in their distress or their agony and help walk them through. So I I think that's a a good, important thing for parents to know is not necessarily go jump into problem solving mode when your kids are in distress, but be with them. And it's not the the problem is, is it's not really necessarily jumping into problem solving mode is what they're doing. They're telling the kid how to solve the problem instead of also create, giving that responsibility, creating that independence and teaching Mm -hmm. a kid how to problem solve on their own, creating that decision-making because we are often told what to do with no knowledge of it, with no knowledge and no independence and no Mm -hmm. autonomy as to what we could choose to do to create that solution. So uh, a common example in my office is when um, I have model magic and it can be really hard to open for kids. And oftentimes they'll pull one time. And then hand it to you. And then hand it to me (laughs) and say, open this. And I'll empathize. And I'm like, you're frustrated right now. You really want this open. Um, And they're like, yeah, we'll open it for me. And I'm like, well, you know, I wonder if there's something you could do to open it. And then they'll kind of look at me and maybe I'll make a a gesture for scissors, kind of, you know, giving Mm -hmm, them a little mm -hmm. hint or I'll kind of look in the area that the scissors are in. And then they'll go, oh, I can use scissors. You're giving them options, which is really choices. So you're like, here's some options. I'll make the scissor motion. And the kid goes, oh, scissors. And then the kid feels like he or she solved the problem, not you handing them the scissors. Exactly. You helped them there. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Or sometimes kids will use their teeth. You know, sure, okay, that's creative. you know, yeah. or um, they'll they'll take it out of my hand and try pulling again, and then it will open. You mm-hmm. know, so like there's more solutions to a problem than what we think, and it gives them that this is the way that I set it, and so it, then it teaches them. Well, if I can't get my car to start, you know, when I'm 16, now what process do I run through to do it? Right, but I'm so used to having somebody tell me go check the battery or do this or do that. I don't know how to do that. You know, I don't know how to walk myself through that process of creating a solution. You're teaching them how to think, not what to think. Yeah. That's fundamental education is what it sounds like. But I think the most important part is that feeling piece. It's really that feeling piece. Knowing what the distress is inside oneself, labeling it accurately, tolerating it, and then returning to reason mode. Yeah. 
What, uh, tell, tell us some developmental milestones we want to know between, say, 5 and 10 years old. So um, five, uh, you'll you'll see kids playing with each other more often. So you'll move from like individual play. So if you and I were playing, like I would be doing uh, parallel play. So I would be playing something and you would be playing something, which is what you'll see in younger kids um, but before age of five. And then what you'll see in five and up is you'll see more cooperative type play. So okay. we are playing something together. We are sharing sharing things. When do they stop snatching things out of each other's hands? Oh. Asking for a friend. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that's always a common question I have with parents. And I stole I've your book seen the other day. Probably you didn't even realize it. About uh, six or seven, eight sometimes. Okay. You know, like honestly, I think. And that's that part of the, that emotional regulation, right? Because why do we snatch things out of someone's hands? We impulse. We want it. It's exciting. We want it. It's exciting. Fun. Or... Because you just snatched it out of my hands, now yep, I'm angry, angry. Yep. and so now I'm snatching it out of your hands. Mm-hmm. And so when we create that emotional regulation problem solving, we then begin to create that wiring in the brain to be able to stop that behavior sooner. Yeah, it says I'm sad and I'm, I can tolerate it. I'm angry and I can tolerate it. It's not I'm angry and I'm going to bop you over the head. Right. right. So, Jake, you just stole a toy out of my hand. You know, that makes me really sad. Can I have my toy back, please? Mm-hmm. I think we skip over that as adults because we think it's so, well, elementary, and mm-hmm. it is. And to slow down the adult brain and meet children where they are uh, requires us to be vulnerable. It requires us to, well, slow down, first of all, and our mm-hmm. society is very, very fast-paced, and it just demands ever more. Uh, so there's a lot of hurdles to, to parenting that I think maybe we don't pay enough attention to. Things like that. We have to speak in kids' language. We have to remember that they're walking the earth for the first time. Mm-hmm. And we don't get to make assumptions about, you know, you shouldn't have done that. It's like, well, how should they have known that? You have to teach them. Right. I use the example as, like, when I go to my father's house, sometimes I get yelled at randomly. It's hilarious. Um, you know, I was I was in his cabinet one day, and I ate something, and he came down the next day, and he was like, you shouldn't have eaten that. Like, that was for um, me to make this today. And I was like, well, I didn't know. If you right. don't tell how me, how yeah. am I supposed to know? Like, And sometimes it takes a number of times, depending, especially with children with intellectual disabilities, it will take a number of times repeating the behavior over and over again, like telling them, you know, that rule or that thing and practicing it for them to really get it. Well, uh, I think I cut you off. You're going to say some more developmental milestones. Yeah. Uh, go, go ahead. Um, some more <clears throat> with is so about by the age of 10, we have a wider um, verbal range of uh, uh, verbal range. So they're playing less, talking more while playing. So um, doing more. Um, social, learning more of those skills kind of thing. And then you get more of that in middle school, which is why middle school is so hard because they're all practicing their um, their social skills. And at that point, that's when um, all the limbic system is actually growing the most. And then later on in the teen years is when the um, prefrontal cortex is actually growing the most. So, you know, you have like these two really big stages of development um, in early adolescence and then later adolescence, um, which is why, you know, teens are so moody. You know, they, they have a ton of hormones going through their bodies. And The audience can't see me, but I'm really pensive because I, I used to be a middle school teacher at one point. I was a long-term sub. I also had a wretched middle school experience. Um, <laughs> what I'm hearing is that 
the brain develops almost uh, not not simultaneously, but in waves. So it's like you go a uh, lot of limbic when you're super young, then some logic, then some more limbic, then some more logic, then some more, then a whole bunch of limbic, and then a whole bunch more logic. Yeah. And uh, if you don't learn how to regulate uh, really both of those, because uh, you could turn into just a, a you know a verb. A verbioso. I'm just making up words now. Uh, somebody who has a lot of language and suppresses emotion, uh, or you can just be, become a very emotional person. Uh, and it's important, I think, to balance both of those as you're developing. But it, it's it's interesting. I never considered the idea that the brain develops in in parts like that. And I think that's really interesting. I want to. You're digging through your paperwork here. I wanted to um, go toward this idea of grandparenting because we've, we've mm. kind of covered some 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 parenting essentials and you know talking about kids and development and I think that's really good um, and what I would say if you want to learn more on the type of parenting that I talk about the book I recommend is Emotion Coaching by John Gottman um, when I started reading that it changed my just whole perspective <clears throat> on how I handle kids just totally switched it um, it's what I primarily use to teach parents, and so I really recommend that book. Emotion Coaching or Emotional Coaching? Emotion uh, uh, Coaching. Emotion Coaching by John Gottman. That's G-O-T-T-M-A-N. Uh, John and Julie Gottman are incredible, incredible therapist people, researchers, uh, who have done a lot for the, the couples counseling world, but also family therapy as well. So... Um, You know, this topic on grandparents raising grandchildren, it's really tough. Um, It's becoming an increased problem in our society. Uh, You know, I think that they say like 10% of children right now are being raised by their grandparents. That sounds like a lot to my ears. Yeah. Um, I want to say that was the statistics that I saw yesterday when I was looking it up or somewhere around there. And I'll bet it's even higher. I'll bet that only captures uh, official guardianships or you know something like that that can be quantified i'll bet it doesn't count the the ones that are standing instead of uh informally yeah or uh, the ones that live with parents r- right too. we got multi-generational families or in yeah. my parents case they see them two days a week yeah they're absolutely grandparenting because they're with them all day two days a mm-hmm. week uh so i, I don't want to overlook that either where the grandparents are are not necessarily full-time raising but their child care you know 40 percent of the time that's significant that is significant and i think the one that i focus on a lot is the that i'll be focusing on today specifically the ones that are the primary caregivers Mm -hmm. um and i think because it's it's really tough you know there's you know you kids are kids are given to the grandparents for a number of reasons um sometimes by by um cps sometimes by the parent just willingly because they recognize they have the problem Um, I've seen that a few times and where, you know, just being a grandparent, like typically you're older, so you're 50 or above, Mm -hmm. if not significantly older. Um, you know, and so there's, there's a lot of different things that go along with that parenting because there's, you'll have the tendency, sometimes I'll see them parent more out of guilt because they are older and they may, and they have more medical issues that, they're not able to do as more fun and playful things with their grandchild because fascinating. Of I was medical yeah, issues. I was thinking fatigue. They felt bad that they couldn't keep up with their energy. Okay, and so that's that another one guilt. too oh, is okay. fatigue. You know, I think that and and there's there's this kind of grief that goes there's this grief that goes along with parenting with grandparenting um, raising a grandchild is that imagine like when if you imagine yourself as a grandparent. 
you imagine yourself as the fun. Just saying I got too many gray hairs. You no. Know, um, <laughs> you imagine yourself as the fun, you know, grandpa, get, you know, like take your take your grandchildren, you know, out to Wild Island and, and go have fun and spoil them, right? Like that's mm-hmm. how we, that's how our grandparents treated us. That's yeah. how we want to be grandparents. Well, grandparents raising grandchildren don't get to do that. They are now stepping in and they are parenting. So they've lost their desire. They've, they've lost their dream, basically. Yeah. Their dream of just being the fun spoiler. Uh, and to that point, we're talking about consistency earlier across households. Um, I guess I guess it's okay if you're inconsistent as long as you know your role. If yeah. you're consistently inconsistent, like, well, we know that if they're going to go over to grandparents' house and get sugared up, like, we, we can deal with that. We're not going to... Moderation ins- and moderation. Sure. We're not going to insist that grandparents be the parents... Unless it's this case that we're talking about, where they they're compelled into the into the role, and, you know. And I think I think it's a really hard thing because there's that also that piece where you're guilty out of parenting, you're parenting out of guilt, um, is because the um, parent is not raising the child, and you feel responsible because may and oh, maybe too. it was yeah. your child, mm-hmm. um, you know, on on um, that's not raising your grandchild. And you're going, what did I do? How did I screw up? Exactly. To get into this position. Sure. Okay. You know, and then, and so that's, that's also another part of that, that guilt, that grief that's in there is because like, maybe you weren't the parent that you wanted to be for that child and maybe didn't get them the help and services they need. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, can be that, that, um, yeah, I would imagine, especially if there's, uh, incarceration or substance abuse, along the way where the the the, grand, the now grandparents would blame themselves for quote unquote creating the the problem that they're now having to uh solve you yeah. know I, I could see that yeah for sure so a lot of the grandparents i work with is that um you know i really suggest that you have a lot of support because you're older you're more ten- you have tendencies to more fatigued um you don't have as much energy you have more medical conditions uh, I recommend like have family support, have somebody, you know, close f- family friend helping you out, you know, that, that can take the kid, take your child, take your grandchild, um, to do fun activities that get a go and, and do more of those things. So uh, almost essentially like a mentor, um, or it could be a family member like aunt or uncle, which a lot of my grandparents do have supports like that. So you want to pull in additional people because, it's hard. It's hard being 70 and raising a 10-year-old boy. Yeah, and I, and I want to make sure that the audience is hearing very clearly that we're not judging. That no. We're just stating facts. The fact of the matter is that as people age, they grow tired. The uh, Bodies break down. We're not designed to, you know, run forever. So when we say things like, you know, grandparents tend to have more medical issues, that's, not, that's a statement of fact. It's not a statement of judgment. Um, so we're acknowledging these facts that along the way we can help alleviate some of the strain and stress so that the grandparents who are enduring this can align their expectations with the very present reality that they're, they're just simply probably not going to be as capable as a 30 year old of chasing down a child. Exactly. And that's okay. That's okay. And so Amanda's suggestion about wrapping yourself in support is, you know, is, is well heard. no. Not everybody has support to, to wrap mm-hmm. themselves in, and we want to acknowledge that too and be very compassionate to those people. Keep going, though. I, um, I, 
dive no. in here and I tend to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that's also really important is that not everybody has the ability for supports, but there's things out in this out in the community that you can find like big brothers, big sisters, uh one of my um cases there's a, po- a police officer that is a mentor. Hmm. Um you know, so you can, you know, like if you if you problem solve, you know, within like trying many different am- avenues, you're going to find someone even if it's a college student. Right. You know, there's plenty of college students that would be glad to be support there for for a kid that maybe doesn't have an adult figure, um male adult figure or female adult figure mm-hmm. to look up to. Absolutely. And I think um there's more stress worry that goes in with it because typically you're hitting near retirement. You're looking to retire. Oh, now we've hit another level of grief in there too, right? Um, you have a plan to retire at a certain age and then... And finance. And finance, you know. And so may, you don't have... Your your um, significant other might be sick. And so you're working more towards... Uh, you know, might you might have to be working more in order to fi- be, you know, financially stable for the child and... You know, and so there's there's a lot of stuff within that that creates a lot of increased stress and worry and anxiety. I imagine that hearing this is validating, but instead of uh, simply validating, saying, yeah, yeah, we understand that, you know, right now your life is really challenging, um, that only goes so far. What are some solutions and strategies that you might recommend to grandparents who may be listening or clinicians who are listening who are dealing with this in their set, in their clinical setting? Um, so... Sometimes on some of them, they might be connected with like, uh, they might be through foster care. So using that supports, um, there's like ones like, uh, if in our community, for instance, if there's like some developmental delays, some intellectual disabilities, uh, you know, certain problems, they might go into special support systems, uh, such as child find, which is a preschool, program here in Reno for for that um for lower income more problems with uh behavioral intellectual functioning mm-hmm. um you know I find uh, look for local support groups grandparents raising children um you know there's there's like plenty of of uh things out there that will help like help you with pay for child care um you just have to find them they're sometimes hard to find mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, therapy for yourself, that piece where, you know, um, do self-care, you know, hobbies, self-relaxation, they're not luxuries. It's, you know, you, you need to be able to take care of yourself in order to take care of somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to that airplane. You got to put on your oxygen mask before you put on the person's next to you. Yeah, and, and I can hear people, because I've, I've encountered this enough in my career, that I can hear people, you know, objecting already, saying, well, I'm already, you know, my schedule's already full. Where am I going to find time to, you know, add a bowling league? Uh, we can't even go to church, and, you know, and, and that mm-hmm. would be nice. It's like, well, yeah, but you have to prioritize those things if you want to be successful. Uh, and oftentimes, the you know, the bowling league or the church has those same, those very supports that you're seeking. There may be somebody on your bowling team who's, childless and would love to help out a couple of days a week or or at least a couple of days a month so you can get away on that date night that you need so um it's it's about prioritizing self and and sometimes i think it's easy to fall into a martyrdom pattern where you know it's it's easier to make excuses than to find solutions so you know here hear very clearly that it is possible and many people have done it successfully though we also hear that it's it is extremely hard and we don't blame anybody for 
for complaining about it because it is very, very, very challenging. And nobody, nobody, I think, you know, when you have kids, you don't anticipate having to redo it. Exactly. Right. No, and we're not, we're not, we're just not wired that way as human beings anyway. We're not wired to raise multiple generations of, of our children. Other animals are. Well, and the problems we ran, we run into today are different than when you were raising your child 20 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, grandparents keeping up with technology in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so uh, we're so, uh, we're coming up against the hour here, and I know you got to go see a client, but I I don't want to leave without talking about foster parenting mm-hmm. and how it differs from what we just uh, explained here. So, foster parenting, you know, you'll have some trauma with with um, raising grandchildren that usually they're they can be taken out of the home for having experienced domestic violence or neglect or abuse, um, and that's the same with foster kids. Uh, in most cases, not all, but I will say 98% of cases. Um, and so it's different. Like you get more, you have more problem behaviors in general with kids in foster care. Well, even being removed yeah. from a home in and of itself is traumatizing. Exactly. You know, um, because you think that this is normal being in this home situation, then you get taken out of it, and then you're like, oh, I'm told it was bad. And, you know, and then there's that thing that it's my fault that I was removed because I told somebody that dad was hitting me. Right, right. So there's guilt that comes along with the kids, too, even though they did the right thing. uh, They haven't been in an environment where the right thing is taught and validated. Exactly. So oftentimes with traumatized children, uh, children in the foster care system, is that they um, they can re- be removed for a number of reasons, um, but you, we often imagine like the abusive households. Um, but you know, like you said, a number of reasons. But you can either get the authoritarian household, the ones that's like extremely rule strict oriented. Sometimes you get the really permissive ones, mm-hmm. um, which you know parents are on substance use and not even taking care of the children. They're neglected. Um, and so either way on these things, these kids aren't taught these skills. They're not taught the normal communicate skills, um, how to handle your feelings. You know, they think you, um, don't do what I want you to do. So I'm going to punch you, Right. you know, like, and, and they're maybe not even thinking that consciously. It's just what it's, they have it's just been what taught. they've associated. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of the time is foster parents, people that work with foster kids really struggle because they're like, well, they don't do this or he doesn't do this. She doesn't do that. And I keep talking to them. And, and so we get so we get angry. And so this is that part where you need to be aware of your feelings. And I would say this with every parenting thing, you need to be aware of your feelings, but oftentimes we act in anger or contempt or disgust or frustration when interacting, especially with foster kids or traumatized children. And they see that and they, that it, their anxiety ramps up because the mirror neurons in our brain say, this person's angry at me. I should go in that fight or fight response. And their body starts getting in the attack. Mm-hmm. And so there's that part of you need to be aware of it and you need to be able to talk to them calmly detached about it. Just like, you know, if Jake and I were talking about this mic in front of us, um, you know, we're able to describe it, but not hold on to it and, and carry yeah. it with us as we're talking about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to hear us properly. Yeah, I think so. If you're a foster parent listening or if you're a clinician who deals with foster parents, just understand that the dynamic that the children bring into the home is such that um, they, they bring these years worth of one way of doing things. And then I think there's this unconscious assumption by the, by the foster parents that, well, you're in a nice home now. 
why why do you why do you still have aggression and it's because aggression was the order of the day why aren't and you they just don't happy all the time sure yeah they don't understand peace and tranquility and it's so weird that they'll they'll literally pick fights to replicate the environment they just left because they don't know what to do in a peaceful tranquil environment exactly like we, we've given you video games why are you throwing them through the window uh they don't it's just too weird. So we gotta we gotta learn to meet kids where they are, and we gotta learn to meet the parents where they are too. It's very very challenging. Um, if you're interested in foster parenting, we highly suggest uh, enrolling. Washoe County Human Services Agency is always looking for new foster parents. So if you're in the local area, look look up Washoe County Human Services Agency. Uh, I'm seeing some stuff on your sheet here. As we close, I want to get some of these um, things ticked off. Uh, I see sleep problems and uh, sibling aggression. And, and what, what I was reflecting on is you don't just often get in a foster setting siblings within one one family. You get mixtures of kids pulled from other families. Mm-hmm. And so you have this interesting dynamic where all of them are bringing very different types oh. of histories into the into the same roof. Um, how, how do you work with those parents, because I know that you and I have worked through our lives with parents who are parenting multiple children. We might be seeing all these children, but you got one set of parents, and so seeing you know overseeing like the four or five or six kids from yeah. different families. So that's the that's the unique thing about this emotion coaching piece um, is that you would handle it all the same way. You would talk to all of them the same way. The rules are the same for all of them, kind of thing, but. There's just an understanding that, like, not all of us have the same temperament. You know, we're we're going to act differently to, to each different situation. If we walk out of this building and a meteorite falls from the sky, Jake is going to act differently than me, but we're probably both going to be going to be shocked. dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, Do you, you know, and so there's that 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 understanding that, like, yeah, you get sometimes you get the cool and calm collected foster kid and sometimes you get the really angry and defiant one but either you know and and both are pretty extremes in different ways the one that has no needs and the one with high needs i'll i'm concerned about both of them right and we often neglect the one that's high you know the one that we don't look at because that kid has no needs right and just like in the classroom setting but you got to wonder child. why. It's like, Ex- well, you know, you should, you should have some behavioral display exactly. that's undesirable. Why, why are you white-knuckling it through and muscling it down? So it's tough. So if you're a foster parent, you know, um, you know, get get into respite. Make sure you have support. Um, uh, some, like, the, like I said, respite is when you need a vacation, somebody that, you know, is, is safe to, to look after the children. They have to be approved typically by foster care, by CPS. Um and uh, lost my train of thought. <laughs> Let's see if we can retrain it for you. Get get into respite. Um, I would imagine oh. there's an ongoing training. Ongoing training. You know, so talk to your social worker a lot. You know, when you when you have problems, sometimes they have like family home advisors, somebody that actually comes in the home, case managers, and, and wraparound teach you skills. workers. Exactly. There's tons of support. You know, but at the same time, it can be exhausting going to all these supports. Sure, you got a and, bunch of meetings and schedules to keep. You know, and I always tell my foster kid, my foster parents, that look, I'm working with this foster kid in particular. But if you need to talk to me about any of the f- other five, you know, that you have in your house, feel free to like use me as a support because I understand that the other five are going to impact this client in front of me. Well, that's good. Just that's just good family systems work. Yeah. It doesn't matter that they're from different homes. You're, you're working in the family systems context. And if they're living on the same roof, they're going to be interacting with one another. Yeah. 
Um, thanks. I know we tried to knock this out real quickly because you have a you have work to do. Um, <laughs> but uh, for those who are interested, pick up emotion function, emotion functioning, coaching. emotion, emotion coaching. Sorry, emotional functioning is something else. <laughs> emotion coaching by John Gottman. Um, and you can always you know, learn more through the stuff that we post on the Zephyr website. Uh, we're going to be having a new website soon. We're going to have a bunch of materials up there beyond just the podcast and the articles. So um, check out ZephyrWellness.org, Washoe County Human Services. Uh, you can look them up. And thank you, Amanda Green, for thank carving you, out for the time. Me. Hope this was enjoyable for everybody. On behalf of the Zephyr Wellness team, uh, family, Zephyr Wellness family, Naganotes team, wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.